Welcome everyone to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am uh, Paul Nefer, your host, and today we're going to have a conversation with Jeff Bushi from um, the Thumb, as he says, the Thumb of Michigan. So, Jeff, how are things going? Uh, yeah, they're going well. We got quite a bit of rain um, since June this year, so um, the crops, some of them are hurt by water. Uh, some of our dry edible beans, things like that, got a little too much rain. Um, the corn, the sugar beets, they look good. Uh, the wheat harvest was very good, except there was a few spots where people had some issues with um, falling numbers where the wheat started to go out of condition there before they were able to get it harvested with all the rain. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things about wheat. Um, I know in the Pacific Northwest about oh, five, six years ago, we had a lot of issues with falling numbers and it was sort of across the board. And what the falling number is, is it's sort of, they take the wheat, they sort of stir it up, mix it up, and then they attach like a um, a weight to the to the gluten or to the, not the gluten, but the, the, the mass of the wheat and then they'll count how long it takes that that weight to drop down and separate the wheat. And my memory is, Jeff, is it around 300 is what they're shooting for? Does that sound right to you? Yes, that sounds right. I think under, like in our area here, under 250, you start getting docked. Under 200, it's basically feed wheat. Yeah, yeah, and that was the same out in the Northwest. Uh, we had lots of falling numbers, like in the 50 or 100. and. And like I said, that ends up being feed wheat. So it's just interesting uh, dealing with wheat. Uh, it isn't like corn or soybeans that have a falling number, but definitely on wheat when you're dealing with the uh, baking quality and all that good stuff. Uh, um, they know how to dock you. And we're getting docked this year for having too high of protein because soft white, you want to have protein under 10 and a half. And most of ours is coming in in that 11 and 12, 12 range this year. So, so enough about wheat. Let's talk about Jeff. So uh, as I always start off, I like to get your background. So let me know where you grew up and education and all that good stuff. Yeah, so I grew up here in Othello, Michigan on a kind of um, dairy farm and crop farm. And uh, like my dad tells me sometimes, if he knew I was going to work this hard, he would have kept the cows. Um, the cows were sold when I was about 10 years old. So anyway, um, went to Michigan. Uh, went to Central Michigan University. Graduated from there with a major in accounting, and I started working here at Nitsky and Foppel um, back in 1984. So I've been here ever since, and uh, now I'm a managing principal here at the firm. And and how how big is that firm, Jeff? So we have uh, about. Um, 15 professionals, about 22 full-time staff. And, and that's based, is it based in Pigeon? Yes, it's based in Pigeon, Michigan, which is basically about to the top of the thumb. We're about 10 miles from Lake Huron and about two different sides. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and I guess, you know, you grew up on a farm, but why did you decide to become a CPA? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So when I was started out in my college career, I was going into business management and um, I came home in 1983 for, um, well, actually it would have been like 1982, that December, 83, I was in my junior year and 
trying to figure trying to figure out what I was going to do. Um, as you know, then Paul, um, things were really starting to unwind in the agricultural industry, and yep. so it was looking more like maybe I should have a second job before I just jump into being a farmer. And so I decided that you know I could probably get a good job in an accounting firm here in the area that you know could utilize my education. And so that's kind of why I went that direction. And so. Currently, you are a full-time CPA, but you also, I think you do some farming or help out on the farm. Go go through that process. Yeah, so um, once I started working here at the firm and I had a, a younger brother who um, went in to be a CPA as well, and we were both kind of working full-time CPAs, part-time farmers, kind of keeping the family farm going, and we were able to grow the family farm. He worked a little bit more than I did in it. Um, at the family farm a little less than the CPA side and anyway over time we were able to build that up and eventually when our, our kids got older we split up so now I have my own farm uh, farming about 1700 acres and I have um, three full-time employees working on that and we do some trucking livestock and things like that as well. Now your mix of crops that you have there, I think you mentioned it all already a little bit, but what, what, let's go through the mix because it is a little bit more unique than the typical just corn and soybeans that you might have in Iowa because that's about, I won't say that's the only crop in Iowa, but it's definitely predominant crop in Iowa, but your area, it's a little bit more diverse. So let's go through what those crops might be. Yeah, so you know the two main cash crops in the area are sugar beets, and dry edible beans and so those have typically been pretty big in this area and then we also have wheat corn soybeans and um, more recently in the last 20 years probably um, more larger dairies have kind of moved into the area and so then there's opportunities to grow alfalfa as well so a lot of alfalfa growing for the dairies in the area so let's i don't think i've ever had a discussion on sugar beets and uh, and I probably didn't warn you that we'd have this discussion, but uh, uh, so how do you, what's the process of planting a sugar beet and then growing a sugar beet and harvesting a sugar beet? Let's, let's go through those three processes. Yeah, so sugar beets can be planted um, as early as you can get in the field in the spring. Um, so like you'll see sugar beets sometimes being planted in late March here in Michigan, um, definitely before corn. And so you'll get the sugar beets planted as early as you can. Um, they're planted and it's a very small seed. <clears throat> Excuse me, they're very small seed. And so it doesn't get planted very deep into the soil. Um, the soil is just basically kind of cracked open, turned black in most cases, just scrape the top of the ground to kind of warm it up a little bit, plant. Um, the nitrogen then, uses on it is about 120 pounds of nitrogen per acre so less than corn um, throughout the summer there's a lot of crop protection being applied just fungicides to keep some of the diseases away um, with sugar beets you need to be at least usually a three-year rotation or better so you can't plant beets back to back so it's rotated through with the other crops there that i mentioned um, they're harvested generally we start in early September because they 
are piled basically outside. So generally what happens is we want to start the factories early enough to be able to run the factories about six months out of the year. So they target to start somewhere in mid-September, be done processing the beets in mid-March. So doing that, then they will just harvest a few acres every day. So there's kind of like a, a schedule that's set up and um, it's a drawing that, that takes place. You can elect to harvest early or you don't have to. You can wait till what we call permanent pile, which is usually towards the end of October when it'll be cold enough for the beets to store outside. And so then, yeah, they're harvested throughout September, October, and then hopefully done by early November before it really freezes up. And then the campaign continues at the factories then as they process them throughout the winter. Um, the payment schedules, they pay out a, a basically a, um, a prepayment in December. So you get a December payment, which is usually about 60% of what they anticipate being the total value. And then they make more payments scheduled out through the, the following year with basically October getting the final payment. So sometimes it's a little over 18 months before you get all your money there from when you start planting to when you finally get paid. And my assumption is that this is a cooperative that, that you belong to and that you deliver the product to. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so basically you're sharing in those profits and that's why it ends up, you know, they're not sure exactly what you're going to get paid till everything's all done and cleaned up and all the sugar's been marketed and then they start their new campaign the next year. And then your payment that you get is really not necessarily based on tonnage, it's based on the amount of sugar that your beets produce or the amount of sugar that comes out the, the back end, is that right? That's right, yes. So and, yeah. And if you go down to like Louisiana and Florida and those areas, my understanding is more of the mills down there are perhaps not a cooperative, you know, they're a private mill, whereas most of the sugar beets that I'm aware of, certainly over in, in Minnesota and North Dakota and then over in Idaho and that area, they're almost all cooperatives as far as I know. I, I don't think there are too many private sugar beet processors. Uh, are you aware of any private sugar beet processors? No, I'm not aware of any. Um, nope, I, I don't know that for sure. And then your cooperative, which which is your cooperative? It's called Michigan Sugar, Michigan Sugar Company. And is prime, primarily all the beets from Michigan, or do they draw from maybe Indiana or anything like that, or is it all pretty much Michigan-based? It's um, it's Michigan-based, except there is some acres actually um, grown in Canada. So okay. they do have a uh, system for getting them across the border and here and processing them here. Um, Michigan Sugar does own a facility in Ohio, but there's no beets growing there anymore, but they do use that facility to store sugar. It's it's interesting out in Idaho, you know, there's a large processor out there, but they're, they used to draw sugar beets, I think, all the way from Washington. I know they get some out of, uh, out of Oregon, but I don't know if they're still taking uh, any beets out of Washington or not, and I think they get some Mm, yeah, I'm not sure if they get any out of Montana or Wyoming. Of course, Wyoming's got some, or or at least they used to. But uh, certainly, that whole industry has consolidated quite a bit in the last 30 years. Right. Yeah. Uh, right now, there's you know four factories that Michigan Sugar um, owns and operates. Um, at one time, there was more factories, but like you said, as the consolidation, Michigan Sugar still owns some of those facilities. They just don't operate them anymore. 
And then on your uh, dry edible beans, what what type of beans are those, Jeff? So they'll grow a white navy bean. Um, we'll grow a black bean that's primarily for Mexico. And then they grow some small reds, um, some red kidneys, light red kidneys, dark red kidneys, um, some great northern white beans. So a lot of different varieties. And so some of the facilities here have you know, specialized facilities with belts and clean out their their pit every dump and all that because it might be going to a different, you know, might be a different product going to a different bin. Yeah. Now, um, harvest for that, is that coming up fairly soon or is that more into September or when do you typically harvest those beans? Yeah, that's going up fairly soon. You can really see the the beans are really turning. Um, now we got a little bit of a fall weather here this week and it really feels like fall and the leaves are all turning on those beans. So typically they're planted in um, early June. Basically you got, we always say till the end of June or maybe till the 4th of July to plant them. So you're planting them quite late in the summer and then they typically will be harvested about 90 days later. So you're starting in early September to basically end of September for harvest. Is that all a uh, a typical you let mother nature dry them down or do you have to spray them sometimes if they're not ripening up fast enough i'm just curious on that yeah you know in in the past we used to what we called pull the beans um wasn't really kind of a pull it was more of a knife that went into the ground a little bit just kind of lifted the beans out and then they were put in windrows and kind of left to dry well, anymore, everybody wants to use the direct harvest method. They got these beans that grow more upright. They're not like a soybean, but they are growing more upright. They'll be able to harvest them direct to harvest just like you would a soybean. And then, yeah, we don't have that opportunity to dry them naturally. So, yeah, they will use products to basically, you know, defoliate the leaves there if it's, you know, looking like the pods are ready to harvest, but the leaves aren't there yet. So when you harvest, is that with uh, just a typical like a draper header or do you have a special uh, head that you have to put on the combine? Uh, just yeah, a draper header. Generally, most of the people that have any kind of acreage will use what we call air reel. Basically just has those air tubes on there to blow any any beans that are kind of like close to falling off the header on you, blow them into the belt and, and get them into the machine. Okay, okay. Um, well, I, I didn't know I was going to uh, segue off on farming side, but for me, that's almost more interesting than the CPA side. But let's talk a little bit about the CPA side, because your firm does have a little bit of a niche in the ag market. So let's go through what that niche is. Yeah, so we work a lot with um, the area crop farmers. And with them, we put together some um, data every year. We have about 2,500 or 25 crop farmers farming an average about 2,500 acres and we kind of list things out then per acre so cost and things like that so we get some benchmarking and then we also work a lot with dairy farms and the dairy farm client base is, is quite a bit wider we work with them throughout Michigan Ohio and Indiana for the most part we have a few clients sprinkled around um, a few other states like Wisconsin Kansas and we even have one in Florida now but most of those have you know are from originally from uh, Michigan here. And for those dairy farms, we put together generally quarterly financial statements. It's all accrual based. Um, we try to measure everything on a per hundred weight of milk produced and a per cow per day so that we can use again that benchmarking data 
for individual farms to basically common size the farm and they can kind of monitor and analyze their operation compared to where they were before and compared to where their peers are. So that seems to be a niche that has uh, suited us well. There's probably about 50 dairy farms we're working with right now, average of about 4,000 cows per farm. So about 200,000 cows in that database. Yeah, and, and that's the one thing I, I notice in the ag arena that, that dairies probably have the most, you know, this isn't the most accurate word, but the most precise accounting. I mean, they, uh, as you mentioned, you know, they're getting everything down to what's the cost per hundred weight per feed, what's the cost per hundred weight per labor and repairs and depreciation and interest or whatever it might be. Um, so, and you did mention that these are accrual-based financial statements. What is some of the, let's say, the more difficult parts of creating an accrual basis financial statement for a dairy? One of the challenges is dairy farms typically um, have basically a profit center, which is the dairy, and then they have a couple of cost centers, which are basically growing their forages or purchasing them. And most of the dairies do a combination of both. I mean, some grow all their forages and some do purchase all, but a vast majority of them probably do a little bit of both. And so it's just kind of tracking all those costs. So we're having to allocate uh, all the costs for planting and harvesting and all the machinery and fuel and labor into that forage bucket. So we can kind of accumulate what's it cost them to grow that forage. And once we get that, established then basically they feed that forage out over the next 12 months so that's one item and the other one is on the heifer side um, there most of them are raising their own young stock in one form or another again some of them raise them on their farm some of them have them raised somewhere else and just pay um, for that monthly some of them pay for them when they come back some of them have a combination, some of them are raising themselves. So kind of keeping track of all that and trying to basically bring it all into being um, comparable from one farm to the next. So again, we have to segregate out all the heifer raising costs for farms that are actually doing it themselves. So those are probably the two big challenges there. Now, in the dairies in your area, or, or I mean most dairies, I think, are they trying to, um, what I want to say when they're getting their cows pregnant, are they trying to make sure that if they're AIing them, that likely it's going to be a heifer versus coming out as a as a bull calf? Or what's what's the process in your area for for that type of process? Yeah, you know, typically for a lot of years, uh, most dairy farmers wanted to have as many heifers as they could, because that's how they would grow their farm. But the last couple of years now. Uh, there's a lot of headwind on expansion. So one of them is just finding milk markets. Um, it's not always just a given that there's going to be a market for your milk. So that can be impeding uh, expansion plans. Um, another one is obviously labor. So I hear many producers say, well, I can just find enough labor to milk the cows I have. I don't think I want any more. Another one is building cost. I mean, we all know where that's been. Um, now as interest rates have gone up of course the interest cost to borrow to expand is going to cost a lot more so we start to see and then of course environmental issues so getting rid of the animal waste so all those things are kind of slowing down the growth so now you have farmers looking and saying you know 
I only need so many heifers to continue to keep my herd where it's at. I don't want to raise any extra because it costs too much to raise them. You can't get, you can't just sell them to someone else because everybody else is doing this. Yeah. So they've kind of went to a model of using that sex semen for usually their younger stock. So their their heifers and maybe their first lactation cows they use sex semen on. And the idea there is that you're turning your genetics over quicker that way. And then their older cows, they're breeding it to beef breeds. And right now, of course, Paul, you probably know where the beef market's at. So yeah. they're getting a lot of, they're getting actually more for their bull calves than they can get for their heifer calves. So um, there's a lot of incentive there to to use sex semen where you need it. And for the rest, use some type of colored, um, colored cattle. So on the bull calves, when they're born, are they typically staying on the dairy or are they shipping them off fairly quickly? Yeah, most dairies have um, some type of relationship with someone who picks them up generally two times a week. So they're only there for three to four days. So they put some classroom in them. They give them some milk for a couple of days until the guy shows up. You know, and he might show up on Tuesdays and Fridays or something like that. And then and then take them off to be fed however many months. And and I I, I have seen a lot of that. Like you say, they'll mix it with uh, some type of beef cow, and it ends up being you know developed for hamburger and whatever else it might be. Is 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 that? Primarily with that, the Holstein bull is eventually going to be more of a hamburger, or are the cuts getting a little bit better off of that Holstein bull or steer? I mean, they'll they'll definitely uh, castrate them at some point. Right, right. Yeah, they'll be they'll end up as a steer. And yeah, I think that they are trying to breed them to like, say, an Angus or something like that, and trying to fit them into that more of a, a higher end beef market. There is one... Um, uh, JBS has a plant here in, in Michigan, so I think they do take a day or two where they are, you know, using it for that type of livestock. I think they have different days for different types of livestock. So I think there's a day or two where they're they're taking those crossbreds in there and, and fitting them in where they can. Yep, yep. So the um, on your financial statements, you're doing them based on accrual, and certainly you've been part of the Farm Financial Standards Council for, for many years. Uh, or how many years have you been on the council, uh, Jeff? Yeah, so um, I think it was somewhere back in the early 90s. And that kind of goes back to um, Nitsky and Foppel here. Alan Nitsky, back in the 80s, was reading in one of the farm magazines about um, this uh, organization that was called the... Uh, um, Farm Financial Standards Task Force, and that they were putting together these records and in a way to standardize the records. And so Al had written in some comments. He had saw some of their, you know, early publishings of some of their articles. And they basically said, well, you sound like you're interested in this. And they asked him to be a part of the, the task force. Well, they always met in mid-November, which was opening season for deer season here. And Al Nitsky was a very big deer hunter, so he didn't <laughs> want to miss that opening season. So he sent me instead. So once his term was up, then they appointed me to fill his spot. So that's kind of how I got on there. <laughs> so the hunting trumped accounting. I can understand that. I'm not a hunter, but uh, I can understand how uh, that might be more important than uh, than going to a, a, a meeting on 
uh, financial statement ratios. So uh, what, what are some of the key ratios that you typically um, see applied in the dairy industry? So um, a lot of times we're looking at working capital. Um, a lot of our um, clients then we talk about that a lot to make sure we keep that in front of them that they have some basically cushion there so working capital being the current assets total current assets subtracting away total current liabilities and you're hoping that's a positive number so we want to make sure that there's a positive number there that they have adequate liquidity there to you know meet the coming needs as and their coming debt that's going to be due the other is that I was going to ask, is that broken down by working capital per cow? Do you do it? Do you break it down that far, Jeff? You know, I think in some um, of the um, loan covenants, they do do that. Um, we generally just try to make sure we're, we're on the positive side when we're talking with clients. Um, okay. But what we do review their loan covenants. And one of the big covenants then is basically the equity. They want to make sure that the equity percentage to total assets is basically 40% or better. I mean, banks will allow you, if you're going to go through an expansion or something like that, to maybe dip down into the mid to lower 30s, but they want to see basically a plan on paper that you're going to forecast that getting back up to the 40. And they may even build that into your loan covenants. In other words, you know, after the expansion, you're at 35% and the next year, 37 and next year, 39 and then back to 40, something like that. Okay. Okay. And so working capital is one of the, those key uh, uh, ratios. And then, like you said, equity, uh, any other key ratios that they look at? Well, I'm sure banks, you know, obviously they look a lot at your debt repayment capacity um, as accountants. You know, we don't typically focus on that that much, but I know that banks do. Um, so they're making sure that taking basically in a nutshell, taking the net farm income, and adding back depreciation and making sure that that's going to cover principal payments. So, uh, well, and certainly in the dairy, I mean, if you look over on the crop side, you know, the equity ratio, I would say, is typically higher, especially if they got their land paid off. Uh, but over on the dairy side, because it is a lot more capital intensive than a row crop operation might be. Um, so do you have any dairies that don't borrow any money at all, or are they mostly all have some type of leverage? Well, you know, it's like typical any kind of business, right? You have a little bit of everything. So yes, there is a few dairies out there, especially after um, 2022 here. We do have some dairies that basically decided just to pay their debt off and be debt free and not have a bank. So there are a couple of those floating around. But, but that's not the norm, right? That's not the norm because well, some of the things are just that they don't like to pay a lot of taxes. So they're looking for ways. Well, the one way to get out of that is to borrow some more money and expand or buy some equipment or things like that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's the that's the treadmill that us farmers get on. You know, we, we don't want to pay taxes, so we keep expanding. But, uh, well, Jeff, right now we're going to go ahead and take a quick break for a sponsor message, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about your role with the Farm Financial Standards uh, You've been with them for about 25, 30 years, but I know you definitely have a role with them. So we'll, we'll go over that a little bit and then we'll uh, end up with the, the four key questions I always ask. 
Get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning, and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. Subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness. Welcome, everyone, back to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm Paul Nieper, your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with Jeff Bushy. So, Jeff, you are, as you had mentioned, you've been with the council for oh, close to 30 years now, but what is your current role with the council? So, currently, I serve as a co chair of the technical committee. So, um, the council has about three standing committees. And one of those is a technical committee where um, most of the information that is going to go out either in the, one of the three different publications that we have uh, are is vetted through the the technical committee. So and then inside the technical committee, there is about a dozen uh, volunteers who we meet once a month for a call, usually a video call nowadays and um, kind of review where they're at. And there's usually about three subcommittees that are working on different projects. And so um, that's kind of the role that I play right now in the Farm Financial Standards Council. A um, little bit of the history of it. Yeah, you know, like I said before, I got involved in the, in the early 90s um, and they used to meet on weekends in November. And so um, I, traveled around a few different places during that time and and over the course of the years things have evolved and now they meet in the summertime and Paul and I were actually just at their meeting um, a few weeks ago this summer in, out in uh, Moline, Illinois so that was nice getting together with all the folks. So once a year we meet as a big group with all the subcommittees and all the committees and and some of the other uh, members and leadership committee um, for about um, a two and a half day a meeting there where we kind of go through things and line up for the next year, elect new officers, things like that. So and, that's kind of a little bit and, of the role and, and the history there. Yeah, and you mentioned that there are three publications. So what what are those publications that we typically, uh, some of them we do uh, an update annually, others as needed. So what what are those three publications that we have? Yeah, so the first one that was originally, you know, basically commissioned, if you will, is the financial guidelines. So it's the uh, um, recommendations um, for financial guidelines of agricultural producers. So basically, they're kind of laying out guidelines on how to prepare a cruel financial statement for a farmer ranch. That's the, 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 the original one. Um, about 10 years later, some of the commodity groups, um, especially like hogs and I think corn and soybeans, uh, really started talking about, well, we need some information for management. So we came up with a managerial guidelines. So that is a little bit um, different 
set of recommendations. Um, and that kind of plays into what I talked about a little bit before, where you start looking at different cost centers and profit centers and identifying those on an operation and then allocating the various expenses and income to those different cost or profit centers. And then the third one was something that we came up with maybe about 10 years ago, which is called the basically an implementation guide. It was a much shorter, um, it's about 20 pages long. It's meant to just, for someone who's maybe not an accountant, what does all this mean? We tried to just simplify it and, and, and get it into a concise, not such a large um, book like the other two guidelines are. The other two guidelines might be made up of 300 pages. This is just a 20 page implementation guide. So those are the three main um, publications right now that we try to keep current. And so if a listener out there was interested in getting the guidelines, um, what's the process of getting those guidelines? Yeah, so it's it's pretty simple. If you have a computer, you can go to www.ffsc. So that's F for farm, F for financial a standards council. So ffsc.org. <clears throat> and um, you can order the guidelines um, one at a time, or you can join as a member and basically get get all those guidelines. I think the membership fee right now is like $100. And um, I think you can buy the guidelines if you want individually, and it might be like $30, $40, something like that. Yeah, yeah. no, it's uh, definitely for those out there that want to uh, learn a little bit more about, you know, what are the guidelines or what are the standards uh, how, how do you do accrual basis financial statements? I would heartily recommend going to the site and downloading the standards and then perhaps getting involved in the organization. Uh, we actually had one of our, I would say, best attended uh, events uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago in Moline. So it, it's definitely a good organization. Plus, you know, the networking is, is very good for, for farmers and others. So, Jeff, I'd like to... Uh, you know, we're getting close to the end of the podcast, and I always ask a few questions. So first, uh, who was your mentor? Yeah, so I mentioned Al Nitsky there earlier. I mean, he was one of the founding partners here. He just passed away about two years ago. And um, he really um, helped me a lot, especially on the client relationship management side and just big picture stuff. And another one was Don Foppel. Um, who is still with us here today. He's he's no longer equity owner, but he still comes in the office, you know, a few times a week and uh, still keeps up some of his clients. And Don was really good on, uh, on the firm management side and basically helping me understand how to run the firm. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, you're sort of a full-time CPA, a full-time farmer. Do you have any time for any hobbies? Yeah, you know, I do. I enjoy... Um, living close to the lake like we do, I enjoy um, boating and we water ski and those kinds of things. Uh, don't do any fishing really unless I go out with someone else. Um, and then I also enjoy snow skiing, which is a little bit harder to do in my profession. But, you know, being able to basically work remotely makes it a little bit easier. To Saturday morning, you can get your work done and Saturday afternoon you can go skiing. So that yeah. still works for me. Yeah, you know, I used to live in uh, Bend, Oregon, which Mount Bachelor is about 20 miles away. And uh, my two partners and I, we would uh, 
we'd work in the morning, that we'd head up to the mountain, we'd ski as hard as we could for about four hours, and then uh, come back and do some more work. So I, I understand what you're talking about. But uh, And then is there anything that keeps you up at night? Well, you know, one of the biggest things is with, like we just talked about, all this technology is just protecting the client's data. And so, you know, that's one area that we're happy to have moved most of our information to the cloud with, you know, reputable um, services there that basically um, assure us that, you know, the data is safe and we got all kinds of passwords and ways to get in and confirm it and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. Um, that, that's probably one of the biggest things is we just don't want that data to go to someone it's not supposed to go to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. Yeah, I, I, I understand that concern because it's very easy for that uh, for those uh, uh, let's say people that are not very scrupulous to try to attack that because that's the way they make money. So that that is something to be concerned about. And then finally, what's your definition of success in either farming or in the CPA business or any type of business? Yeah, you know, I think that obviously you, you want it to be profitable, but more importantly, I think is that you just enjoy the business that you're doing and you enjoy coming to work. You know, if you can have a business where you look forward to coming into work and if you're on vacation, you know, you're not like dreading the day you come back, you're actually kind of looking forward to it. Yeah, I can't wait to get back there and just see what's going on again. So I think that to me, that's the definition of success. I, I definitely agree. Uh... Yeah, if you dread going into work, uh, then you're probably in the wrong profession. So, uh, well, Jeff, is there anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? Well, just thank you, Paul, for having me on here. I know you and I go back quite a ways, and so I always appreciate getting your insight into things, and I know we bounce things off of each other, and I appreciate, you know, your opinion and, and, and appreciate your willingness to consult with me. No, no problem at all. Again, Jeff, thanks a lot, and this is the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer, and this is Paul Neefer, your host, signing off.